Welcome to the latest episode of You Should Read This, here again with Tom Vandaluba. And in this episode, we will be tackling the book, The Fearless Organization, uh, subtitled Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation and Growth by Amy Edmondson. Amy, in fact, appeared on the Being Human uh, episode, um, sorry, on the Being Human uh, podcast. And yeah, it was great to go into the, into some depths with the uh, with the book with her in in that uh, show uh, episode eighty one. For those new to this, uh, and if you want to check that out, you know we'll put a link in in the show notes to that. But for those new to this, psychological safety is being able to show and employ oneself without fear of negative consequences of self image, status, or career. Uh, I'll read that again. Psychological safety is being able to show and employ oneself without fear of negative consequences of self-image, status, or career. And that was a definition written by William Kahn in 1990, which I'm taking straight from Wikipedia. Um, so yeah, this is a, a kind of deep dive into what we mean by safe, uh, psychological, like psychological safety, where Amy herself has observed this in different companies, uh, what are the benefits of psychological safety, uh, and how... Uh, at least we as leaders uh, is uh, is the question she really answers. Can um, encourage psychological safety in our organisation. So that's what we'll we'll take a tour of in this episode. The book itself um, is split into, split into three parts. The first is the power of psychological safety. The second is psychological safety at work, and the third is creating uh, what she calls a fearless organisation. So that's what we'll be doing in the next sort of forty five minutes or so. Um, is there anything you'd like to open with, Tom? Yeah, I think we should um, we should explain why Amy Edmondson became so famous, <laughs> right? And uh, um, and and where is the link to business? Um, and I would like to refer, but you can also add on that. There has been research done by Google, and it's called the Aristotle Project, and they found out that, or then they they want they want they wanted to do research on team performance or performance of and comparing the different teams. And, and, and to cut a long story, story short, the conclusion was that teams where there was psychological safety, and you just explained what it was, were doing much better. So what was the conclusion? If you want to boost your team performance, a typical American way of framing the whole stuff, how can you maximize your output? Oh we should have a safe environment. That's, that's more or less uh, what they found out. And then they, were, they started to search. Eh? Those intelligent guys at Google, they search and they invite people, Google Talks, et cetera, so they know where to find the research. And they found Amy Edmondson. And, uh, and then, and then since, since then, there uh, has been an enormous amount of articles and this hashtag psychological safety refers to this whole let's say environment or 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 topic so to say yeah um yeah that's why it's so relevant uh and i think we all know it right i mean when i think about the most successful teams i i've been in i mean one of the ways that she refers to psychological safety in the book is this idea of candor you know the teams where you know you feel like you've yeah you know, when i just think back to you know a project i worked on a digital project we we were developing one of the very first digital marketplaces in the uk yeah, we all felt like we were contributing. We could all speak up. Um, we could criticize each other. 
but it also felt kind of vaguely warm and, and res- you know, was sort of warm and respectful enough that we felt like we were getting on with each other. And, and that, yeah, it just, it just feels good. I think when you're in that, in that bubble of, um, sort of respect, right. We all had mutual respect for each other. We, we respected each, what, what each of us brought to the table. Sometimes we'd have disagreements, but we'd work them through. Um, Interestingly enough, as she as she refers to in the book, you know there was a, a hierarchy, but it wasn't um, particularly pronounced. Uh, yeah, and we did great work together, and just a very small team of us. Um, you know, I think there was only sort of six or eight of us. Uh, basically, built a kind of version of eBay, uh, not quite from scratch, but um, over the course of about nine months. Uh, yeah, in um, you know super productive way. So uh, yeah, I think as I read this book. I had a I had a, a sense of having experienced teams like this and knowing what knowing what it was like. Yeah, what let's say perhaps what we can do is just to start with the first part, uh, and the first part it's let's say the explanation uh, is why fear is counterproductive, and um, as you also discussed with Amy in in your podcast interview. Um, uh, Amy uh, Edmondson has done a lot of research on 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 let's say different uh, catastrophes in the past, uh, and 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 shows that it would have been a the, the, the yeah one would have been able to avoid those catastrophes if there would have been psychological safety. Yeah, uh, and and perhaps we can just take some of those examples. There are uh, flight incidents with airplanes. Where people were not allowed to speak up, KLM, the Dutch uh, airliner, uh, as an example, at the Canary Islands, and then you, you, and then you can uh, do some other ones where, let's say, pilots are sitting next to each other, and 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 yeah, people are just not not yeah, they don't feel safe enough to say, oh, think I think we're doing something wrong now, and uh, yeah, and then and then uh, there's a collapse or. Um, uh, it, it ended uh, in a catastrophe. Uh, and then she analyzes on, in these different uh, topics, uh, what's the reason for that? And she did a lot of uh, research in hospitals, for example. It's also a classical example. And in the book, Fukushima is mentioned and the space shuttle, etc. So that's where she comes from. Yes, that's right. And so she, uh, yeah. But one of the things that she she actually starts with, which I thought was interesting, was that um, what she calls this sort of accidental uh, discovery, that she was looking at error rates in hospitals. Uh, and she had this particular chart for assessing team effectiveness, a particular survey. And she expected to see a correlation between team effectiveness and the number of medical errors or mistakes in this uh, medical setting. And she did find a correlation, but it was the inverse. Yeah, the uh, wrong so one. Actually, yeah, she actually found that as team effectiveness went up, the number of errors also went up. It didn't go down, and this puzzled her. And of course, what she realized was that it was these effective teams were actually reporting much more of their errors. So there's that candor again. They were, they were, they were yep. prepared to be candid, uh, and actually they were doing the better job. They were just being much more honest about when they were making mistakes. Um, and so that then sent her off down a, an inquiry into, well, okay, well, what, what is it about teams and cultures that enables them to be honest with themselves and others? 
uh, and that's you know that's what started her her journey uh, until about ultimately, as you say, Google caught up with her. It's also lesson on statistics, huh? That's uh, that's I mean you can do a lot of statistic research, but especially if you ask people, uh, we see exactly the same. That if you, for instance, install self-organization and you have much more freedom, the let's say the reference points you compare with is totally different. So right. and that's something which you here also see. So so it's interesting, uh, and that's also what she describes in your interview or the interview she had with you, they said, oh, I found a correlation. And I thought, hmm, that's strange. But, but then if you dive into that, that's also in a way very logical that, that if you feel safe enough that you report more mistakes in the hospital. And if you feel unsafe, if you fear, then you say, mm, I, I haven't seen the mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you're in a... Um yeah, and if you're in a situation where you've got, as she alludes to later in the book, if you're in a situation where you've got very high standards, and often medical organisations do have very rigorous standards and they're very well documented, uh, but there's no psychological safety, you're in a kind of constant state of anxiety. Um, and um, I guess as any of us can relate to, when you're in a state of high anxiety, you're very unlikely to um, to perform well, especially when it's complex. I mean, you can kind of grind through simple tasks even when you're anxious, but. Yep. When you, you, you need to get creative and join dots and get playful, then uh, there's basically no hope of you performing at a high level when you're in an anxious state. Yeah, and then let's say the, 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 that's the first part. So starting with the negative point of view, that, that is extreme examples. So Fukushima is, an, is, a, is a very well-known example, or the space shuttle accident is a very well-known example, where in the end they found out oh, people were not willing to speak up. It was not safe enough. Although then afterwards people said, yeah, I already had an impression something was wrong, but nobody said something. I thought, okay, my, perhaps my colleagues will speak up. Uh, and, then, and then the next part of the book is, um, is that she uh, shows some examples of fearless workplaces, which is uh, chapter five. Uh, and perhaps you want to, um, to uh, take some of those examples, Richard. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the ones I like uh, is the, the Pixar example. Um, and I think this, this illustrates the fact that what she says right at the start of the book is that psychological safety is, is not about being nice, right? Because a lot of people might hear this and be like, oh, God, you know. So what's this all sort of come by our, you know, let's find a consensus, everyone, and, and, and don't upset each other, right? It's absolutely not that. And they talk about the, the example of Pixar, of course, who has you know, a sort of stunning run of very successful movies. And they have this uh, Pixar, apparently they have a, a brain trust uh, and their job is to critique uh, movies in development. Uh, and even just the language that um, the guy she interviews here describes, you know, he says, you know, all our movies start out sucking, right? Now, even just that illustrates like what, what mm. a culture is in. Like in yep. how many other contexts could a senior executive when interviewed by somebody from Harvard, tell them all our products start off by sucking, right? You know, that in itself tells you kind of all you need to know really about the culture that, that uh, somebody in, in a senior position could be that candid. Um, and then how do they get them to not suck? Um, <clears throat> well, they have uh, these processes where they critique the movies and there are three rules. The first is you must be constructive with your feedback, which I guess is, I suppose, familiar to all of us, right? That, that's actually not 
um, uh, in that um, you know, interesting in a sense. Um, we want to have suggestions, uh, not prescriptions, right? And that's something we can, I, you know, even I fucking find myself guilty of. It's like you want to jump straight to, okay, well, this is how you should do it. So they're saying, no, you don't do that. You might suggest, hey, have you considered this, right? That's suggest- suggestive, you know, framing. And um, this idea of the feedback should not be gotcha. So it shouldn't be, ah, ah, Tom, you know, you screwed up. Uh, it, it should come from a place of empathy, right? So, okay, given yeah. where Tom is at, at that point in the process, right? Okay, I can understand why you, you know, you might have done this or that, right? So that, that focusing on the empathy um, when, you, when you're providing feedback. Um, so I thought that was a great example of like one way which sort of fearlessness manifests. Yeah. Did you yes, have uh, uh, any like? Yeah, the, I mean, there are there are some uh, some some uh, examples. Uh, uh, perhaps we shouldn't dive uh, into all of them, but uh, uh, an example I like very much is probably on the on the on the other side of the spectrum is uh, Barry Waymiller who wrote um, the the book or uh, Barry Chapman is 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 uh, is the is the person and Wayne Miller is the company and he wrote this book everybody matters so which which goes very much into this being human uh, and 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 he has a kind of buy and build strategy so he he also bought a lot of companies but he never he never fired people he says everybody is important and uh, so, and 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 there is this example of the bus which Perhaps people are familiar with in Jim in Jim Collins, put the right people on the bus and take the wrong people out of the bus. And Barry Waymiller says everybody deserves to be in the bus and I just make an extra round. And 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 in the end, everybody will jump into the bus. Everything is fine. And he shows with all his companies that that this deep human connection he makes with everybody uh, works excellent. So he creates an enormous psychological safety. Uh, and everybody is allowed to to join on its uh, in its own speed and not jumping immediately on the bus, but perhaps on the second or on the third round. I mean, you shouldn't you shouldn't be against something which is going on in the company, but he creates a, a kind of he says everybody's family. Uh, it's um, it's um, a caring for for your people like family. So it's another it's another approach. I think is very nice one, also because your podcast is called Being Human. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> Yeah, uh, no, I, no, I like that example. It does remind me of the. It's from a different book, but um, the the Buddhist guy who set up the cookie company in the states, and his hiring, his, his hiring uh, procedure is you just it's just a list. You just join the list, and when you get to the top of the list, you get hired, whoever you are. Yeah, right. total faith in humanity. Yeah, um, there are there there are more of those examples. Huh? Also, in Netherlands, you also have one. So, so that 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 they say, we we we. Uh, I think also a, a cookies company. They didn't they didn't uh, create the company to bake cookies. Now to give people a possibility of 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 being employed, yeah. uh, because they have been in jail before or something like that. Which is is incredible, interesting way of seeing things. You're not say okay, I want to be a, a, a excellent cookie baker. No, I wanna I wanna I wanna give people as a possibility to rejoin society. Excellent. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think we're, well, let's not, we'll, we'll probably come back to this theme, but I think what we're touching here is, you know, there's a broader context here. It's not just about like how you interact with meetings and, you know, your behaviors as a leader. It's, and even your structures and processes, it's, it's this broader 
what's all of this founded in? Is it founded in like a, a deep care and respect for each human being in your company, right? Is, is that the basis of it? Because um, if it's not anything that you try to put on top of that is, is not going to be as successful. Yeah. And framing is you have here, let's say, two directions. One framing is where we started with. So if you want to maximize output or when you have to want, if you would like to have the highest performance, then it makes sense to create psychological safety. And the other, the other way is the more humanistic approach. You want to create a hum human environment because your aim is to help people. And it's also if, you, if we refer to our book, Small is Beautiful, uh, this Buddhist economy, it's, it's, let's say, you wouldn't fire people because the social goal or purpose of the company is to employ people. Yes, 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 it's another, yes. It's another, it's another way. But, but both are ending up in this uh, theme of uh, psychological safety. And the third part is, um, uh, and it's probably, I don't know if it's the longest part, no, I'm, um, uh, third mm. probably, it's about creating a fearless organization. So yes. I don't know if you want to dive into that by starting, for instance, with, um, with the structures he creates or... Yes, well, I think, you know, perhaps it's, it's, it's useful. I mean, I know we're jumping straight to the, to the end of the book, but it provides perhaps a framing of it. She, she talks about the leader's toolkit for building psychological safety. Um, and then she breaks it down into, into three categories, setting the stage, inviting participation and responding productively. Um, when she talks about setting the stage, framing the work, setting expectations about failure. And that's a big theme in the book, right? Destigmatizing failure. That's a really important part of uh, yeah. psychological safety. And in fact, I'm working with a client right now who just... <laughs> through any means necessary, wants to excise any word, mention of the word failure from a, a set of slides we're preparing. And, you know, I, I have empathy for his position, right, in the culture that he's in. Yeah, that may attract some stigma. So, you know, a big part of um, the psychological safety, de-stigmatizing uh, de failure, being comfortable with uncertainty, which actually links to a very common theme on the being human popular house, which is, you know, this idea of complexity and embracing uncertainty. And then she talks about emphasizing purpose, what's at stake, why it matters and for whom, inviting participation. Um, so asking good question, listening to others. So again, she's a big focus on the sort of the human behaviors here. She talks about demonstrating humility. So, you know, as, as me as a leader, if I can demonstrate humility to others, I got this wrong. We failed. I screwed up. Yeah. And um, that's a big part of this. And then setting up structures and processes, maybe we'll want to dive into creating the right forums for, interim, for, for input. You know, what do, these, what do good meetings look like when we're optimizing for psychological safety, providing guidelines for, for discussion? Um, and perhaps we can touch on the raid. Dalio example of Bridgewater in terms of how they do that. Um, express appreciation, listen, acknowledge, thank you. Again, that sort of touches into the care and respect for, for human beings. De-stigmatizing de, uh, de failure I've talked about. Um, and sanction clear violations. Uh, yep. So yeah, it's not all carrots. It, you know, apparently some sticks are necessary. So uh, yeah, that's, that's the way she breaks it down in terms of building a fearless organization from a leader's perspective. Any reflections on that? 
Um, yes, what I, I, I wanted to take out uh, one uh, example, which I like uh, a lot um, because it's, I mean, uh, I, I'm a historian. So uh, what I, for instance, like is this idea of, uh, she calls it the powerful question or devil's advocate. Mm. And if you Google devil's advocate, you find out that uh, in the Catholic church, when, when, they, when they talk about, about uh, or discuss about uh, saints, if somebody would be a saint, somebody had to argue in favor of this person, but the devil's advocate was installed by the Pope to do exactly the opposite. And, uh, and everybody knows devil's advocate, but there it comes from, which, which I uh, didn't know, but I looked it up in Wikipedia. Wikipedia. And, 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 and for instance, in our company, we, we often discuss this, that if we all agree on something, that the last one should, should, should let's say, argue against it just for create a better decision-making. It's kind of decision-making tool, so to say, but it's very old just to, 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 to sharpen the, let's say, the process or the, or the thinking in the, in the organization. But it's, if you do this over and over again, and if it's a part of the process, then it feels familiar to argue against something, which is a way of installing psychological safety. Right, right. Because people get started to get comfortable with, you know, these yeah. opposite positions being explored. Yeah. And that but makes sense. But it's also if you study law, yeah, there, this whole culture of debating or debating societies is also that it becomes familiar in this environment that people argue, let's say, in, in, in one direction or the other direction. And it's still done in Oxford. You can see him in his put online nowadays yeah, that there is a kind of. Uh, thesis and then somebody says okay I'm, I'm i'm in favor of it and then the other one comes and says i'm against it and that's 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 cultivating debate and that's something which we at the moment don't realize that much uh that that let's say the 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 this process of debating is is an is a neutral thing so if we want to proceed if we want to have a better outcome or also if we want to respect each other or respect other opinions is very uh, important to cultivate uh, the debate culture and not say okay i only talk to people who have the same opinion i have yeah exactly and i think this draws into the, the broader debate going in society right now is that we all live in these social media bubbles and we're only ever exposed to opinions we agree with um we also perhaps don't interact in like you know, we don't eat together in the same way that we used to, right? Kids are on screens and having debates around the family table so much, right? We, we, it's almost like society is trying to mitigating against us being able to absorb and be respectful uh, and explore opposing views. So, you know, perhaps that's why, perhaps, you know, here's a hypothesis, that's why we, we, this topic is coming to the fore right now is because somehow it's been eroded by society at large and when we sort of find each other in organizations we're finding this more difficult than perhaps in our history um because of how society's evolving how parenting's evolving you know uh, and so on yeah perhaps you also would like to dive into this example of google because you also discussed this in the interview with amy which is in sanction clear violations and where it was about james Daymer in this uh, memo uh, memo uh, in uh, 2017 about uh, diversity um, because I find it also interesting. So 
uh, it's it's something which you see in companies, but you also see it in society at large, where the question is if if you have somebody who says no, something is going in the wrong direction, somebody's more or less punished openly for that. Although although people who speak up doesn't matter in a company context or in a societal societal context, uh, are people. Uh, you have to be very brave to speak up. Take Snowden as an example. It's also a very good example of psychological safety. If somebody is ruining his own lives for, for the benefit, benefit of the society. But, and this ex- exactly happens in the company as well. Or at least that's uh, one position, Tom. There would be others who would argue the precise opposite, right? Let's say that if you talk about psychological safety, yeah? so something's, yeah. if, if you say, I mean, you, you can, you can, uh, you can put it in a very simple way. I mean, if you talk about uh, walk the talk, for instance, then we know that if we don't walk the talk, it is helpful, especially in the long run, if people speak up and say, "Hey, we're not, uh, we're not behaving in the in in the way we we should. We're not walk the talk," and that's what something was was happening. Uh, and the question is, how how do you respond on 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 that as a company? Or uh, as a society, but it's uh, in in both cases, it's it's about psychological safety, because if we overreact on that, at a certain point, people don't speak up anymore. Yeah, well, exactly, and I I think it's it's, it's almost like can, can, cancel culture is cancelling psychological safety, right? At large in society, and we we need to address it. I do, absolutely. I think we are. Many, many of our sort of leaders now, I think, are addressing the fact that, that cancel culture is, is a threat in many ways to, to society. And um, it's, it's also true within organizations. And, you know, I, I think I keep coming back to this empathy. I think this, you know, this is a, a sort of key part of this is can we, can we separate the view, the position from the person? Can we explore why this person in front of us has this particular view? Can we get to the point where we could say, oh, okay, if I'd grown up in their circumstances, if I'd had their life experiences, if I um, were exposed to these set of risks and these set of opportunities, maybe I'd come to a position like that, right? That's something that I think is paramount um, in, in terms of us building psychological safety and, and building a set of skills, if you like, that allow us allow us to create psychological safety. Yeah, and what I what I find very interesting, uh, because especially in this Corona or COVID crisis, uh, there's also a lot of discussion going on about, let's say, the way we build our societies. Uh, anti-fragile. What's the role of the state? Um, uh, who's taking what responsibility? I mean, if we wouldn't have strong states at the moment, we wouldn't have survived the crisis because most companies would have gone bankrupt. Uh, just as an example, so if you if you want to question, let's say a lot of public institutions, it's a good time to do so because mm, at the moment we really need them. Um, but one of the most interesting parts of the book I find is on page two hundred two, is psychological safety about whistleblowing, because you also asked Amy Edmondson about free speech, which is a more uh, I would say a decent way of asking the same question. Um, uh, and she says they demonstrate uh, courage. Um, and she says in companies, and she, uh, she says then in companies, we'll come to society later then, in companies with psychological safety, whistleblowing 
should not be needed because employee concerns concerns will be expressed, heard and considered. And I thought, oh, that's a strong sentence because that means that if psychological safety is in place, you have the normal processes which are solving, let's say, the normal tensions and you don't need whistleblowing. Mm. Yeah. Well, and the, well, that logically holds together for me, right? If, it, but it's not just about psychological safety, right? Because you could imagine, could you imagine a situation where you felt totally able to, to, to speak up? You had no fear of threat of your, your career, your status, all according to that definition. And yet the company itself was still doing something wrong. And that society at large might need to know about, right? So I, I can I can conceive a scenario where you could have high psychological safety in a company, and and yet you still might there still might be a need for whistleblowing. Um, but uh, yeah, no. In general, it would seem to me that yeah, you 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 wouldn't really have that setup. You wouldn't need people wouldn't need to go outside. I mean, if if I think if two things are true, if a you've got psychological safety, and b there are just ways to resolve issues within the company, then for the most part, you're never going to need to take your concerns outside of the company. Yeah, but to take a very practical example, which is all over the place, sexual harassment. She also refers to it in the book. Yes. So if there is a safe environment, then people would be able to speak up. People don't have to quit and then go to the press and say, do you know what happened in the, what happened in the company? I kept some emails. It's a very actual uh, situation. I heard also about Bill Gates in one of the, a couple of days ago. So it's it's yeah. it's this topic is going on and going on. But if there is psychological safety, also this kind of topics, uh, uh, yeah, just would be discussed in a normal way and would be solved in yeah. a normal way. And, yeah, and they, would, they, they would they wouldn't end up in the press. And it also was in this Google context. Uh, which, which I find, uh, let's say, very interesting. Uh, but there's also this aspect of radical transparency. So the more transparent stuff is, uh, uh, yeah, the better it is. But that's something we also know from democracy. So if it's clear who's paying whom uh, for, for, for what reason, uh, then, 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 then everybody knows. So if, 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 let's say, if you fund a political party, uh, but but it's it's kept as a secret, uh, which is which is done. Then then it's much more difficult and creates a lot of uh, 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 tension. And here it's exactly the, it's here is exactly the same. So the more transparency you have in the company, the better the better it is. Yeah. No, I think I, I think that makes sense. Uh, and there's the, the example, isn't there, of in the Bridgewater, the, the company um, run by yeah. Ray Dalio, who wrote the book Principles. And he's a target for my post- podcast, for anybody who knows him. Uh, they, uh, yeah, they, they record their meetings, right? They video. Um, yeah. their, their, and there's a meetings library online where people can go and, and, and see, all of the, yeah. um, see all the videos. And it reminds me of a story from the book... Um, is it, it, it one from many, right? The visa, the story of visa um, by D. Hop. And he yep. described, and I love it. And he describes the, the, the situation of their annual board meeting at, at Visa, and they'd go to some Caribbean island and have their board meeting every year. And each year that the spouses were invited, um, you know, certainly in that era, I think we're, we're all female. And, you know, the men 
and the, and the board members are all men. And the one year they invited the spouses to, to watch the board meeting. And uh, the, the change in behavior was remarkable, right? So the spouses didn't say anything. They were just observing and they all behaved very differently. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, uh, I, yeah, I just think that the, the fact that you know that whatever your interactions are are going to be you know, made transparent to the rest of the organization in itself, yeah, supports psychological safety. Yeah, and especially if you know that all the meetings are online, it's much more difficult to talk about other people who are not in the room. So if you, if you have a problem or an issue with somebody, you, you should go to this person bilaterally and, and talk about it because you wouldn't, you wouldn't discuss it in a meeting and then uh, everybody says, hey, listen to that uh, tape, uh, uh, this colleague complained about you. So it's, but it's also an old rule eh, that you, if, you want to, if you want to discuss something, you should discuss it with the person itself. Yeah. So well, yeah, yeah, which which comes back to care and respect, but it also comes back to yeah. what if we if we're going to destigmatize failure, what do we want to stigmatize? And Ray Dalio says he stigmatizes, he calls people yeah. in his firm, is it slimy weasels who uh, those who talk about others behind their backs? So yeah. it's, a, it's sort of we are creating a, a supporting morality around uh, yeah what we're yeah. trying to achieve. What I, what I would like personally to, uh, to end with is on uh, page 207. That's the last uh, uh, two pages. Uh, the question is, what about cross-cultural differences? Is it possible to create psychological safety in China, Japan? And, and you name the country here. And then what I find interesting um, is that she refers to a book of a Dutch professor and uh, it's, it's a famous one. He is called Geert Hofstede. And the book is called Cultures and Organizations, Intercultural Cooperation and Its Importance for Survival. And, and she refers to it because she says, um, uh, research shows that workplace psychological safety is lower in countries with greater pounds distance. That's nice because let's say in, the, in her notes, it says that the opposite is also true, um, or the opposite is not, not the, cry, uh, the, the right uh, way of framing this, but it means that when there is a low power distance, uh, it's much easier. So cultures with a low, lower power distance, it's, there is easier to install psychological safety, which, which, I mean, she frames it here in the other way around. Eh? Is it, is it difficult to install it in China, et cetera, eh? which is from, from this American Western point of view or our Western point of view, eh? it's dictatorship, so to say. So is, it, is that possible? But the other way, the, to ask the question the other way around, is also interesting. And I, I find it pretty uh, yeah, sad. I would, have, I would have liked to read much more on that because if you see all this modern organizational developments about psychological safety, we know also from research that especially in the Scandinavian countries, where we have in general, uh, let's say, uh, a very low power distance, not only in the companies, but also in the state. And so let's say politicians are going by bike to the parliament. And, and so it's very flat, so to say, flat society, not only flat organization, that these societies are much better equipped to install psychological safety in companies. Um, and and I, I, would I would have found it very interesting to, because Amy Edmondson is a professor at Harvard University working in this American environment 
Uh, we talk about hire and fire, and and, and we have a lot of uh, also topics in in society which are pretty unsafe. Black Lives Matter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, it would have been interesting if you perhaps your next book is on 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 that broader topic. I would be very curious what what the connection is of psychological safety in companies and psychological safety in societies. Yes, that's right, and. Well, I think there's a number of ways. That, you know, she's. I think what's interesting about the book is she's she's obviously disco- discovered a phenomenon, and she's developed some hypothesis. You know, in terms of you know there is this correlation between psychological safety and um, various good outcomes, and then she's got some examples of companies where they've managed to achieve this, and she's put forward some hypotheses about how you know, given whatever company you're in, you you might encourage in this. But yeah, she never really asks the question. She never zooms out, does she? She never really asks the question, okay, well, what are the factors outside of the organization that might mitigate, you know, for and against psychological, psychological safety within it? It's almost feeling like there's a, there's a book begging to be written that looks at that, you know, broader perspective. Yeah, and, or, if or it's, and if it's true that companies do better and we as a society do better because the companies do better if they're more psychological safe than what? that we need to do as a society to um to encourage it you know just ju- just to take very put it very practical if you have a high uh let's say psychological safety around the company so if you have for instance high unemployment benefits if 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 quitting the company uh, as as a last resort is something which is pretty easy because it doesn't influence your own private lives because you still have let's say your health insurance, you are still able to send your children to school or to university because that everything is paid by, by, by the society, then, then, then let's say the end result would be that also in, in, in it, it, has, it influences in an enormous way the way you behave in the company. Or if you have a low unemployment rate, huh, it's easier to quit the company than you have an enormous high unemployment rate. And that's why there is a correlation between, let's say, changes in society during times where there is a low unemployment rate. So in the 60s, there was a lot of uh, uh, change going on in society. Why was that the case? Because we had full, full employment. But if you, if you have an enormous chance of being unemployed and you have high uh, uh, loans or student debts, and and you're risking to 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 let's say you lose your health insurance or you're losing your status or you're criticized by your partner how could you speak up in the company because our children have to go to university you can't to my point of view you can't separate psychological safety in a company you can't separate this from the societal context of it right so in some ways you think the analysis is flawed from the start because it's trying to reduce it down to what's going on inside the walls of the, of the company. I don't know if she does, but it would be at least a very interesting discussion. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. What comes to mind is a, uh, something I read once, a research about suit sales. And apparently suit sales go up, in, uh, often go up in, uh, in a downturn in the economy. And that's because everybody feels like they need to impress their, their bosses more to keep the job. And uh, I think that that would make sense, right? You know, we feel less safe to express ourselves in Hawaiian shirts and T-shirts when, uh, you know, it's not looking too rosy outside. But it's a very, it's a very good example because let's say this whole, uh, uh, let's say flexibility 
entering the workspace, where did it start in IT companies? So if you have not enough people, if people have a very strong position on the labor market, they say, no, I'm only going to work then and then. And the IT guys were the first who would were able to enter the company buildings with the card and, and do the programming at night. And, and nobody cared if they were uh, wearing white shirts uh, because they, 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 there were just not enough of them. So they said, I'm only going to work there if I don't have to wear a suit. But all the other, all the other guys, no matter if they had contact with the clients, they had to wear a suit. So it's an excellent example. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and this has been around since the start, you know, from what I'm reading about the, the people who maintained the clocks, certainly in industrial Britain at the start of the year, you know, or during the Industrial Revolution, um, were, uh, could, they were the ones who could get away with coming in late, coming hungover, right? They, because they were, they, you know, they, were, they were felt so safe, right? That, you know, they were never going to get fired as being the guys maintaining the clocks because that was, you know, such a prized job and it was so needed for the running of the factory. And yet there'd be people on the production line getting beaten if they, you know, if they were a minute late, right? So, yeah, I think it's, um, it, yeah, it's, it's important that we... And to, to end with a practical example, because we're living in the COVID crisis still, that the companies who, who, who tell their employees that they, can, that they can stay at home forever are the IT companies. Right. I mean, these are not, and, and the old fashioned companies where, where, where they would say, if you don't like to come back into the office, uh, you're fired. That's, that's, that's exactly the opposite. So if you just would see the newspapers or would you see what's going on, the, the, the remote working software companies, the GitHubs and, and, and the Zooms, et cetera, of, of this world or the Facebooks, they are telling their, their employees, doesn't matter after COVID. It uh, doesn't matter where you are, just keep working for us. If you are in Bali or uh, no matter where, as long as you keep working for us, it's okay. We don't care where you are. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a very good point. And so then, of course, it begs the question like, well, how do we keep it safe no matter how prized you are by society? And that, you know, that becomes a, um, yeah, another question. Which, which again, you know, which circles back to the, the power distance and yeah, yeah that's correct. That has a factor. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So, so I mean, I think in, in summary for me, this, I mean, all that said, you know, I think there is uh, in this um, some gems of, you know, of wisdom and some observations of some, some great practices and some pointers as to where you might want to evolve your leadership if this is something that you you want to uh, manifest to a greater degree in your company. Um, and I think it's also true that there is this much broader context, which um, isn't really addressed in the book. Uh, anything else? No, I, I, I mean, I like the book a lot. For us, uh, psychological safety is really the basis. So I, I admire uh, also uh, the research, which is done on the topic. But I also would be very, very curious to see the more societal context of uh, psychological safety. Fantastic. Well, on that note, um, yeah, let's close this out. Thank you, Tom, once again uh, for uh, no, this, this, this next you. installment of You Should Read This. Um, we'll put a link to the book uh, in, in the notes. Uh, yeah, and see, see for the next installment. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Should Read This with me, Richard Atherton, and my fantastic co-host, Tom van der Lubbe. If any of the material in this show resonated with you, 
if you're thinking perhaps how could I take these ideas and apply them in my own leadership or, or take them forward into my own organization, then I would love to have a conversation with you about that. If that feels like that could be a valuable use of your time, then please do click on the Calendly link in the description for this episode. and That will allow you to book a slot directly into my calendar. And I hope to speak to you soon.